when we come to the topic of the Lord's Supper, I sometimes think that it is almost like a precious jewel of metal, a plaque, an inscription that is filled over and covered far too often with a whole lot of dust and soot, a whole lot of layers of sediment that have accumulated on it over the centuries. And sometimes it feels like we need to come to the Lord's Supper and this topic and just just blow away the dust. We need to polish off the meaning of what this ordinance is. And I think one of the reasons for that is because I'm looking around here at each one of us and so many of you grew up in a different church, a different uh, denomination, with a radically different idea of what the Lord's Supper is. You were taught one thing that may be very different than what you believed you now, or you may have been taught something that was completely inaccurate scripturally or is part of that accumulation of dust and sediment that seems to hide more about the meaning than reveal about it. And I wonder if that's caused some of us when it comes to the Lord's Supper to recognize it as something we should do because we're commanded to do it, but not really fully understand why. Why? Baptism is like this. You know, there are two ordinances for the Christian church today. The first is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, communion, however you want to refer to it. Those are two ordinances. And sometimes, as we've tried to do with baptism, we know that we should be baptized. Someone should be baptized when they get saved. But we wonder, why? What really does it mean? The same thing with the Lord's Supper. The difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper is that how many times are you to be baptized? Once. How often are you to take the Lord's Supper? Often. The Bible doesn't say how often, it just says often. That's how often. And so while we get baptized perhaps once, maybe some of you haven't followed that directly, maybe you've gotten baptized more than once, but I would say for most of us, we're baptized once, and then we come over to Lord's Supper and we take it over and over and over again and it becomes just like a pair of clothing that fits us well. The socks that we put on that are comfortable, we don't for sure know why exactly we're doing it. It just, we do it. Well, today, we need to fight against that tendency. We need to blow away the dust, thank you, Ben, that is accumulated on this subject and understand it from the beginning. Matthew 26 reveals for us the very first one of these Lord's suppers. The very first. And so if you would with me this morning, I want to invite you to just put aside all other preconceptions you have about what the Lord's Supper is. Whatever you have been taught in the past, whatever has accumulated on this subject for you, I want you to put it aside for just a moment, and I want you to come to Matthew 26 as if you were sitting at the table with the disciples, and you were about to partake of it for the first time. You were about to be introduced to this subject as we go through this short passage as Jesus inaugurated this celebration for us. 
And what I suspect that you're going to find as we come to the Lord's Supper today is that this Lord's Supper is going to be an invitation to you directly from Jesus, just as it was an invitation to those first disciples that he gave it to 2,000 years ago. The title of the message this morning is The Lord's Supper in Invitation. The Lord's Supper in Invitation. And may our response to this invitation, even this morning as we come to take Lord's Supper, be exactly in the words of that hymn we just sung, I come, I come. Let's start with the subject of the Lord's Supper, the subject of the Lord's Supper. I want us to see, first of all, as Jesus inaugurates, introduces, gives this ordinance to his disciples that would then be carried on in the church to this day. I want us to see what the main theme is, what the subject here is. And again, let's approach this like explorers, like learners, like people being introduced to it ourselves. And it needs to start in verse 17. Look with me in verse 17, will you? Again, this is so important that we have our Bibles open and we're allowing the Bible to teach us, not just a pastor to teach us. You didn't come here for my words. You came here for God's words, from his words. So let's have our Bibles open and let's be relating to the text together as we preach this morning. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? So you need to understand the context that is here. This Lord's Supper was inaugurated from what kind of feast to the Jewish people? The Passover. So we need to understand a little bit about the Passover to gain an understanding of what Jesus was inaugurating from the Passover. Do you know this was, in a sense, the last Passover? At least until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. We read in the book of Luke that Jesus says, with desire have I desired. That's a really strong Greek idiom. It means I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you. Why? He says, because I'm not going to eat of it again until my kingdom. There is going to be a Passover coming in the future. But for today, this was the last Passover, in a sense, for the Christian, until Jesus comes to breathe it and infuse it with new meaning once again. So Jesus is eating a Passover feast with his disciples. They're meeting in this upper room where he's going to teach them and give them of his final instructions from John 13 to John 16. We read about what happened at this dinner of his teaching. But now we also read here in Matthew 26 about what he did. He's eating the Passover feast with them. Now what's the Passover? Turn back to Exodus chapter 12. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 26. But for context, I think this will be very helpful for us. In Exodus chapter 26, the people of Israel, Israel, God's people, his covenant people, the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are in slavery. And God has come to them through his messenger Moses, who says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go from their slavery. And Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. And God brings nine successive plagues on them. He is bringing his judgment. He is revealing that he is God, he is sovereign, and he is all-powerful. And then he tells them that he will bring one final plague. 
it will be the final plague that each one of their firstborn children will die. An awful plague, a heart-rending plague, a judgment of God upon Pharaoh and his refusal to let God's people go. And notice what Moses commands them from direct revelation from God in verse 21. Start with me in verse 21 of Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. So they were to take a lamb and they were to kill this lamb. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, think like a plant, something that you would be able to take as a kind of paintbrush, if you will, something to soak up the blood, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. So these people would take this as kind of a paintbrush, they would hit it on the two side posts of their front door, and on the lintel. So it's on all of the door, it's visible to everyone who is coming by. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Why? Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. You see that? The Passover. He will pass over the door and will not suffer or allow the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service, this Passover. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service that ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And for 1,500 years or so, the children of Israel continued doing this every single year. They would gather together for this Passover celebration. Their families would come together. A lamb would be killed. The blood would be in a basin. They would take the, this bunch of hyssop. They would put it on the door. And they would have a feast to remember God's deliverance, his salvation of them from the bondage of slavery. And Jesus says, we're going to participate in this Passover. He was a Jewish man. This was something that he did regularly each year. But now notice when he gets to verse 26. And as they were eating, what were they eating? Which meal? The Passover meal. This was part of the ceremony. And there, was, there were certain psalms that were, be, were to be read. The Hillel. There were certain of, uh, of, of a courses, if you will, of drinking the fruit of the vine and exchanging unleavened bread and eating the lamb. And all of this was going according to course. And then suddenly in the middle of it, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. What bread? Unleavened bread. Don't think of a big loaf that has leaven in it that rises. Think of the crackers that we're going to be eating here. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, at, at immediately the disciples would have said, something's different here. This is not part of the Passover ceremony. Jesus was intentionally stepping out of the Passover ceremony. And who was he focusing on? 
Was he focusing on the lamb? Was he focusing on God's deliverance from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years previously? No. Who was he focusing on? Himself. Can you imagine the boldness of someone to take a ceremony that had been going on for 1,500 years and standing up and saying, this is about me now. Who could do that but the Son of God? The Messiah who this ceremony 1,500 years ago was all about in the first place. It was all picturing him. He stands on the last Passover that he would ever participate in until the kingdom comes and says, this is my body now. This is my body. And then notice what he says. He takes the cup, the cup of the fruit of the vine, and he gives thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink you all of it. Why? For this is my blood. He said, this is about me. And so the first thing we pause to say is that the Lord's Supper is centrally about him, the Lord. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus inviting us to a table in which he is the main subject. But not only is he the main subject, what is he saying when he breaks bread? Again, if we were to break those crackers, you'd hear it snap. He snaps the bread and he gives it to them and he said, this is my body. What was he meaning? What was he meaning when he took the fruit of the vine and hands it to them in this cup and said, this is my blood. Not just is this my blood, it's my blood which is shed. He was talking about his death. A body that was broken, not physically, not a bone of him was broken, but a body that was broken metaphorically in death. A, a blood that was shed as his blood was shed, his life ebbed from him and he died. This is not just about Jesus. It is about the historical death of Jesus. As we've talked about here in this church, our faith is not based on mere ideas or doctrines or concepts. We are not like the Buddhists. We are not like those who have mere theory on which our faith rests. Our faith rests on historical facts that Jesus lived. He was a historical person. He died. His heart actually stopped beating. His brain waves actually stopped firing. He was dead. And then the historical fact that he rose, he physically came back from the dead. And the historical fact that he is alive today, that is what our faith is based on. If those historical facts are not true, then close this church. There's no point to any of it unless Jesus historically and bodily lived and died and was buried and rose and continues to live. So the Lord's Supper is about Jesus inviting us to a celebration, a remembrance of him, but historically about who he was and what he did. But I want you to notice something in verse 28. He said, for this, this cup, is my blood of the New Testament. Have you ever read that or heard that said in communion and wondered what is he talking about? This is my blood of the New Testament? Testament? Well, this might help. 
That word testament is really the idea of covenant. You could translate it covenant. That's the idea of it. A testament or a covenant. You say, what is a covenant of blood? Well, in this day and age and in every day and age, blood seals promises. Have you ever heard of someone signing their name in blood? Maybe even as a child, there was something fascination that you had with blood. There, there is an element of it in which if you were to draw blood from your veins and you were to write in it, you were to signal it, it would be a solemn covenant and promise that was being made. It seals a promise. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24, we won't read it, but you can look at it or, or make a note of it. It's easy for us to forget that when Moses came down from the mountain with God's commandments, do you know what he did? He killed, he had, he had oxen killed, and he took their blood, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and, and here's what they said, and they said, all that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. So they hear the words of the covenant, they said, yep, we will do that. And Moses took the blood, the blood of these oxen, and sprinkled it on the people. We sometimes forget that. And listen to what he said. Behold the blood of the covenant. You hear that? What did Jesus say? This is my blood of the covenant. What did Moses say? This is the, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Jesus is taking the blood that seals a covenant. You say, what covenant? You go back through the Old Testament and you see God promising his people, I'm gonna make a new covenant with you. Not the covenant of the law, not the covenant that was sealed by sprinkling of blood and the words of the law, which none of us could satisfy God with ultimately by our own sin and our rebellion. Jesus says, this is my new covenant. In other words, this is the new way. I am opening a door. I am the door. I am opening a new path with God, a new relationship with him. This is my blood of the new covenant, the new promise of God to his people. You say, what kind of covenant? Well, look what Jesus said here. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. It wasn't just a sealing blood. It was a sacrificial blood. It was shed for many. You say, what does that mean? Well, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? His blood was shed for you. Why? We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What happened on the cross was that Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. His death was to stand in the place of my eternal death. The judgment that fell upon him was to be my judgment. And in his substitution, in standing in our place, his blood being shed for you and for me, I 
am saved. You see, it was not just sealing blood. It was not just sacrificial blood. It was saving blood. Notice here, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. What are we doing at the Lord's Supper? We are coming as Jesus invited his disciples to say, this is my body, this is my blood. It is about me, it is about what I did, and it is about a new covenant, a new way to reach God by my forgiveness of your sins that stands between you and God and disallows you from his presence. Now that's why one of the central facts we need to learn about the Lord's Supper, about our communion, is who it's for. This is not simply an object of curiosity for anyone to come in and say, I wonder if this will do something for me. Let me try it out. Who is this for? It's for people who are part of the new covenant. If this is the object, if the subject is a new covenant with God based on the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, this table is only invited to those who are part of the new covenant. You understand? The invitation on it are all those whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but no one else. Jesus' invitation is for those who have entered that covenant with God by faith. Is that you this morning, friend? Have you come into that new covenant? Have you accepted the terms of repentance and belief? Accepting the work that Jesus has done on your behalf, embracing him as your savior, as your Lord? Then the invitation is to you this morning, friend, to come to the Lord's table. But notice not just the subject, but notice secondly, the symbols the symbols that are used. Notice these involve two objects, two things that can be tasted, that can be felt, that can be experienced. Jesus breaks the bread and he hands it to them and he says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he hands it to them and says, this is my blood. Now, those two objects, those two tangible things are at the heart of so much of confusion today, even in Christian professing churches. The Roman Catholic Church, those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, practice what is called transubstantiation. Now that, what that means, very simply put, is they believe that these elements, the body, or the, I should say the bread and the fruit of the vine, the cup, actually literally physically become the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Now, let's just pause for a moment there. Again, if we were coming at this from the first time, as if we were participating in it from Matthew 26, do you believe that any of the disciples, as Jesus took that bread and broke it and handed it to them, would have thought when Jesus said, this is my body, that he was physically giving them his body to eat while he stood directly in front of them, a human body? Do you think that's what they would have understood? Oh, I get it. He's physically giving us of his body to eat right now. No, they wouldn't have. They would have understood what was obvious. He is giving them this bread as a symbol 
as something to represent his body. In the same way that when Jesus said to them that night, I am the true vine. I don't think one of them began to picture him as some flowering green vine crawling all over a house. I don't think any of them understood it like that. Or in the same way when Jesus said elsewhere in the book of John, I am the door. I don't think they believed him for a moment to be a door swinging on hinges with a latch and a lock. No. It is, seems very obvious to be a representation. And we'll talk about this a little bit more if you're curious. But suffice it to say, I don't believe it is appropriate to view these words as being intended to be taken literally. In a normal sense, if we interpret them normally, we would understand that Jesus intended to be providing a, a representative, a symbol of this. I said there's another way to look at it. And those such as the Church of England or the Lutheran Church don't believe that Jesus truly is actually physically the body and blood there of these elements. But they believe that Jesus' presence nonetheless comes with them. It is called consubstantiation or something similar to it. And again, we reject that view. We reject that there is anything mystical that happens, anything magical or spooky that these elements contain or come alongside some kind of spiritual presence. Again, these th things seem very clear to us to be a symbol, to be a representation of something. Well, what does that represent? If they are symbols, what kind of symbols are they? Well, think again of the body, representing the body of Jesus being broken for us. Imagine again the blood that is, that is sim, uh, this, this, uh, the cup of the grape that is symbolic of blood being shed, being poured out. What is this symbol of? Well, again, what is this new covenant that we are participating in? Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. What's he saying? Well, how do we enter into a relationship with God? Solely through Jesus Christ. Solely through what he did for us on the cross. Solely through his body being broken and his blood being shed as a sacrifice for our sins. Which tells me that this symbol that he is inviting us to participate on is a symbol of the only way that there is to God. Through Jesus. Through his sacrifice for us. Through his substitutionary death on our behalf. He is inviting us to come and feel and taste something that represents his sacrificial love for us. And in that sense, while we reject the idea that there is something physical that is transformed about these elements, even something spiritual that is transformed about these elements, it is not right to say that they are merely symbols. As if, oh, that's not that big a deal. They're just symbols. Don't we understand how powerful symbols are to all of us in things that we can feel and see, and touch, and taste. Earlier this week, I brought my children around, and, and we were watching part of the opening ceremonies to the Winter Olympics. And this wonderful spectacle where all the athletes process out into this 
beautiful stadium with lights going everywhere and everyone of every single conceivable skin color, every conceivable national origin and ethnicity and language all come out as one in in a nation-by-nation procession. And my kids were so excited to see the Stars and Stripes come out. They were so excited to see America come out. And suddenly it was like, there's America! There's the United States. Well, what what was coming out? A symbol. What symbol? A big American flag being held and waved by two people. Every single person would understand my kids if they were to say, well, there's America. No, that wasn't America coming out all 300 million strong. What was coming out? A flag that represented America, that symbolized America. And how many times have we seen that flag go up at an event of some kind or a flag at half-mast and we felt something? We said, that's my country. That's the United States. That's the country I love. Symbols mean something. Those of you who are married know this. This ring may be costly. It may have been costly, but that's not its primary value. Its primary value was because One day, going on 10 years ago, not quite, going on 10 years ago, Tabitha and I stood across from each other and she put this ring on my finger. And when she put that ring on my finger, she promised to love and be loyal to me. And I put a ring on her finger and promised to love and be loyal to her. And that symbol means something. These rings mean something I hope even to you today, those of you who are married, you look at that ring and you say, this means something. It is incredibly important to me. Symbols mean something because they touch and taste and they reveal and they represent something to us. And here's what Jesus is doing to you, friends, when he invites you to his table. He's saying, come and taste my love for you. Come and experience again my sacrifice for you because he is physically present? No. Because he is mystically or spiritually present? No. But because he is present with you nonetheless? Yes. Because by faith, he is saying, come taste this and worship and love again how much I love you. Come and taste this and touch this and experience this and again reflect on what I have done for you and who I am for you. You see, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are participating in something with Jesus by faith. And that's why this Lord's Supper isn't optional, friends. It's not something that is just merely the Lord's Supper. It's something that is essential to your spiritual life because every time you come to the Lord's Supper, you are responding to Jesus' invitation to taste of his love once again, to experience by your physical touch what he did for you on the cross in the same way that a wedding ring, a touch of that wedding ring, reminds you of the love and the loyalty of a wedding covenant between you and your spouse. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish 
preacher said. He said, of course, we do not get a different or better Christ in the sacraments, in the ordinances, than we do in the word. But we may get the same Christ better. You understand that? We don't get a better Christ. But we might get the same Christ better with a firmer grasp of his grace through seeing, touching, feeling, and tasting as well as hearing. I preach the word to you today and you hear. We come to the Lord's Supper and you taste and you see and you experience in a way that it, apart from being mystical is nonetheless your faith partaking of the reality of Jesus Christ. That's why the Lord's Supper is essential, not optional, not something that we merely pass by as if we can go without it. And finally, we need to see not just the subject, Jesus Christ and him crucified, not just the symbols, this bread and cup that are the representative, they represent his love for us and his sacrifice for us. Finally, we need to see the sharing of this Lord's Supper. I want to look at one other aspect here in verse 27. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. Now from our King James version, that, that might strike us as a little ambiguous. Is he taking a cup and saying, drink all of it, like drink it to the last drop, let none of it remain? Or is he saying, drink you all of it? Like y'all, y'all drink of it, you all drink of it. And I think very clearly what he means is the latter, not the former. He means all of you drink of it, not drink every last drop. All of you drink. Why? Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, when you realize that this is the symbol of the new covenant, the new promise of God for his people, to which all of us are called to come in. He says, I want all of you to drink of it. And friends, he makes the same invitation today, the same command today. Every Christian, all of us drink of what? The same cup. Who was Jesus speaking to 2,000 years ago? Disciples. 11 of them. Do you know, friends, all of those disciples have been dead for thousands of years? They're all dead. And some of the ones who we have loved, who have gone before, they have sat in this room and participated of that cup. And they're gone now. They will never take it again. Until, until, wait a second, go with me to verse number 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. Who doesn't participate in this Lord's Supper? Jesus. He will not participate any more than those who have died in him are participating in the Lord's Supper. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Friend, those 11 disciples that were with him at that time, they're not drinking anymore. Just like Jesus is not partaking in this Lord's Supper anymore, but one day they will. And one day he will. 
And one day you and I will together. What is the Lord's Supper pointing to? The Lord's Supper looks back and it says Jesus died. He died as a historical matter. He sacrificed himself for me and we look back. The Lord's Supper looks to the present and says, as I taste, as I touch, as I feel, as I experience, once again, Jesus communicates his love to my soul, and I feel it. And the Lord's Supper looks ahead to the future, when one day, that day, Jesus says, he will lead all of us of every tribe and tongue, of every ethnicity and skin color, of every conceivable class and race of people, all of us will be gathered together and this Lord's Supper will once again be performed. And this time, it won't be a symbol. It will be the real thing. You see, it's as if Jesus is saying, to all of us, every week we come to the Lord's Supper together. It's as if he's saying, come, I have an appetizer for you. I have an hors d'oeuvre for you. I have just a foretaste for you. But the main course is coming. The main course, the real supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb is when I come in my glory to establish my kingdom. And so I invite you to my table. I invite you to experience my love. I invite you to come with all the confident hope and assurance that those who sat in this room and partook of this cup, they are not gone they will partake of it once again, just like I will and just like you will when all of us are gathered around the table, when God's great drama of redemption has gone down, the curtain has gone down because it's all completed, it's all fulfilled, and all of us will gather around and experience the main course of the love of Jesus for all of eternity. That's what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper. That's what it means. It is Jesus inviting all of us. In the words of the Song of Solomon, he invited me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. I invite all of you who know the Lord Jesus, who love the Lord Jesus, who want to walk in communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus to come this morning and partake of his love once again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Supper. How much do we minimize it and fail to understand how powerful, how essential, how necessary this is to our spiritual lives. Because week after week, it is Jesus inviting us to partake of him by faith. And so, Father, I pray that you would 
open our eyes and most of all, soften our hearts to in a real sense, by faith, taste of you today. May your love be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.